here we go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to High Holiday Boot Camp. This is where we get ready for the holidays. I heard a great description of, hey, Oded. I heard a great description of High Holiday Boot Camp. High Holiday Boot Camp is when you're working furiously. Until 729. Until 7.29, right? And it's like the high holidays are coming and I need to get inspired. I need to get in the, in the, in the, in the spirit. It's exactly what this is for. It's exactly what this is for. Tonight's class is dedicated in loving memory of Janet Lapa, whose first yard site, that's Amy's mom, and her first, literally today is her first yard site. And um, I want to wish you, um, so first of all, may her memory be for a blessing. And we know that in, you know, Jew, a fundamental Jewish belief is that life is the life of the soul is eternal and the soul is really where the most the most meaningful parts of a person lie in other words their spirit and their love and the memories and indeed may your mom's memory forever remain alive and vibrant in your heart and in your soul and may you carry her message with you always and share it with your family your husband your kids and um, indeed, uh, she should be a good advocate on high for you and the family. And please, God, soon with Mashiach, have the uh, reunion with all of her loved ones and your mom included. And let us say, Amen. Amen. All right. So today we have a just an incredible class that is filled with spirit. I will tell you. So let's do this, because uh, I need to take a bit of, I know some of you we've learned together for a while, so I, I kind of know some of you, but some of you maybe not. Tell me, I don't know, like the experience of learning together. Kabbalah, who has learned Kabbalah before? Raise of hand. Kabbalah, 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 yes, okay. Not me, because I'm not over 40. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> oh, David, nice. Um, Okay, so here we go. So tonight's class is going to cover chauffeur, prayer, chauffeur, prayer, um, let me think, chauffeur, prayer, the architecture of the universe, as well as Kabbalistic secrets of existence, and all in order to answer some fundamental questions. So we're all going to cover all of that in a short amount of time. So here's how we're going to start. We're going to start with some uh, association some word association. Um, I'm gonna tell you a word, and you, I'm gonna say a word, and you tell me what you think of. Apples? Oh, very good, very good. Chauffeur? Blast. That's what I was thinking. Very good. Um, prayer? Oh, everyone's gonna be polite. Oh, say it! Pray. All right, huh? Silent? Good, forgiveness, okay, what did you have? Shul, okay, good. What else? Hashem. Prayer. Hashem, God, good. What else? Oh, Prayer. Talis. Tefillah, good. Meditation, good. Connection. Connection. No, that's a good one. I like, I like all of the above. Tshuva, good, good, good. So there are a lot of themes that we have uh, on Rosh Hashanah. And now let's drill down into the last question that I asked, which is about, um, about prayer itself. If you, now, there's a lot of prayers on Rosh Hashanah. It's a longer service. Not as long as Yom Kippur, mind you. By the way, one of the strategies of Yom Kippur is you stay all day in Shul and you forget that there's a fast. 
I'm kidding. That doesn't work. Are you, are you kidding me? Hey, Jeff. Welcome. Yeah, that does not work at all. Um, I got a spot for you over here. If you want or over there, wherever, you're good. Okay, now. So one of the, one of the things that... Sorry? What's the donation to the synagogue? <laughs> you're, you're, oh, for this? Yeah. <laughs> All the hard questions, I direct straight to you. Now, here's how, here's how this works. The prayer service on Rosh Hashanah is somewhat akin to a regular prayer service. In other words, you don't have, it's not like Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, all bets are off. It's the only day of the year that you have five prayers. Okay, a typical day of prayer, you have three prayer services. If you start at night, because... I don't know, that's how we roll, right? We start, day starts at night, obviously, because we can. So you have the evening service, known as Mayrev, you have the morning service, Shachrit, and you have the afternoon service, Mincha. Those are the three daily services, starting from night and going until the next afternoon, late afternoon. Great. On Shabbat and most festivals, I just call it Shabbat and festivals, you have four prayer services, including the night prayer, the morning prayer, and then Musaf. Musaf literally means the additional prayer. Well, it's not literal, but it's kind of somewhat figurative. Musaf means addition, additional, additional prayer. And then you have the mincha as normal, so you have an extra prayer. Now, on Yom Kippur, it's the only day of the year that you have five prayer services, and the extra one is Ni'ila. The extra one is that Ni'ila prayer that is at the close of the service. So there's a lot of prayers um, in the Musaf, there's something called the Avodah, which speaks about the service that happened in the Holy Temple um, on the day of Yom Kippur. The prayers are extended. They're longer. Um, obviously, they're very heartfelt. That's Yom Kippur. But Rosh Hashanah is like pretty much the, the, the tefillah, the order of the prayers, follows an ordinary Shabbat or holiday. Four prayer services, your evening service, your morning service, your musaf, and your mincha service. Um, you can eat. Yes. It's great news. You can eat. You don't have to fast. Um, there is a custom, by the way, to that many have not to eat before hearing the shofar. Yeah, that's how I wake up below the shofar. Good to go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but there's a custom not to eat before the shofar. But this year, I don't know if you guys know this. This year, there's no shofar first day. Because it's Shabbat. We don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. Yeah. So if you're expecting your shofar on the first day. Come anyway, but then come the second day and you'll get the chauffeur. Um, okay, but back to the story. So Rosh Hashanah is, is typically is, is more or less like a typical uh, um, prayer service holiday situation, with one exception that the prayers are a little bit more elaborate and very unique as well. So here's how this works. Um, the prayer service on Rosh Hashanah, the Musa prayer, includes three major themes. They're called Malchiot, Zechronot, and Shofrot. Malchiot speaks of God as king. Verses that speak of God as king. Zechronot are called remember, I mean remembrances that speaks of how God recalls, remembers, and takes note of what we do, human behavior, and it's you know everything's remembered, for better or for worse. And then the third theme is shofar, and that's when we speak about shofar and then sound the shofar. This year we're going to speak about it. First day, sound it. The second day. Now, when we think about the themes of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah, so two major themes emerge. Number one, this idea of God being king and coronating God as king, which we'll speak about. But also, number two, is the theme of our smallness, our humility, our humble nature. So if you take a look, let's start off right away. Does everyone have a copy of this? If not, I have more. Do you guys have? Joy, here, pass one down, please. 
And if anyone else does not have a copy, please let me know. Everyone's got? Okay. Um, perfect. Let's do this. I'm going to pull this up on the... Hold on. Let me get this. This is going to be Okay, give me one second. Here we go. It's coming up in a moment. Stick with me. Okay, um, here are the themes. Um, Ronnie, if you don't mind, please read text number one, which is from Psalm number 130. The song of ascents, I call to you from my de depths, dear God. Dear God, hearken to my voice. May your ears be attentive to the sound of my supplications. Dear God, if you keep a record of iniquities, O oh God, who could stand? For forgiveness is with you so that you would be feared. I hope, O oh God, my soul hoped, and I await his word. My soul belongs to God among those who await the morning, those who await the morning. Israel placed hope in God for kindness and much redemption are with him and he with he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. Okay, so hold on, before you turn the page, how would you characterize this prayer right here, which is from Psalms, but how would you characterize this prayer that is recited on the high holidays including Rosh Hashanah? Humble. Totally humble. I, and, the, and the verses that speak to, speak to uh, that theme to me is um, verse number two. Oh, well, even verse number one, from the depths. I'm calling from the depths. Verse two, may your ears be attentive to the sound of my supplication. Supplication is the idea of you know, beseeching and begging, and it's, it's coming from a place of, of humility. Um, if you keep a record, verse three, of iniquities, who could stand? In other words, if you really held everything against us, ay, who's right? Ay. Triple I. You know the story about the, uh, the Jewish moms in Florida, in Miami Beach? They're sitting there on the beach, and one says, I. The next one says, I vey. The one says, I vey zmir. And then the first, uh, fourth one says, I thought we were not talking about the kids. I thought we said we weren't. Anyway, that, that's the classic joke. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Hey, guys. Please pass down. You guys share? Have one. Oh, you have? Oh, perfect. Oh, okay, that's for you. All right. Good. So verse number one captures the theme of supplication, beseeching, coming from a place of humility and really putting oneself out there for God. God, you know, who are we? What are we? You are, you are in charge, etc. Now, that's one theme. And then we have another major theme, which is text 2a. So please turn the page to text 2a. Jody, do you mind reading text 2a, please? All right. And this is, and just to clarify, this is a... Peace. This is an excerpt from the Amida prayer that is recited throughout Rosh Hashanah, davening specifically. Take it away. Our God and the God of our fathers, reign over the entire world with your glory, be uplifted over all the earth with your honor, and appear in your splendorous, enormous might over all those who dwell upon the earth. May everything that has been made know that you made it. May everything that was formed understand that you formed it. And may everyone with a breath in their nostrils proclaim, God, the God of Israel is king, and his kingship rules over all. Perfect. So that, thank you. That is the um, a major refrain in the Amida and the Amidot prayers throughout Rosh Hashanah is this idea of, of asking God, beseeching God to reign over the entire earth. Now, this makes sense in the context of the previous text. It all makes sense. 
Rosh Hashanah, we stand before God and say essentially two things that are complementary. We are small, you are big. Simple. We're small, we are humble, who are we, what are we, our deeds really can't carry us that far in the big picture, right? And you, you're the king, you're in control, you are great, um, and, 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 and hopefully everyone's going to know that, right? God uh, is kingship rules overall, etc. So those are the two themes, smallness of humankind and the greatness of God. And that we also find this text to be as a rationale, as a reason for why we sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Now, if I ask you the question, why do we sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah? Many answers might come up. Shofar, why do we sound the shofar? Greatness of God. Okay, what else? Classic reasons. What does shofar serve to do? Oh, what, is, what was that? Wake us up like an alarm clock. Signal that the holidays here. Signal the holidays here. Good, right? Trumpet blast. By the way, it's like an alarm clock. That's what Rambam says. He says it's like a it's a wake up call. Yeah, the Tshuva, It reminds um, reminds us of the binding of Isaac. Remember when Avram Abraham took his son, and then the angel says, "Put down the knife." Right, step away from the knife. So that was a um, that was an indication of of sacrifice on behalf of Avram, ready to sacrifice his son. And then a ram appeared in the thicket, and he sacrificed the, the ram instead of his son. And that ram, the the ram's horn, is uh, is what we use for the shofar. Um, but here we have from the Abu Drum, we have another fascinating take on shofar, which I think was mentioned. But let's read it now in context, Adrian. Am I reading text number 2B, please? Rabbi Asadi of Don wrote, Our blessed Creator instructed us to sound the shelter on Rosh Hashanah because this was the day that God created and began to spring over the world. It is the custom of kings to be coronated to the soul of trumpets and to the horns of, to announce their our, our coronation far and wide. We do the same on this day with the shelter and we crown the Creator our King. So Abadram says, he quotes Sajagon, who was one of the early Gaonim. The Gaonic period was kind of before the 1000s and kind of that period. So this is going back, you know, at least a thousand years in Jewish scholarship. Sajagon writes that what is this shofar? It's like the sound of trumpets at a coronation, which is fascinating because there was a coronation recently, right, in England. Who would have thought? And I'm sure they blew some trumpets. And this is, huh? They did. All right. So they, they, blew, they blew trumpets. Turns out they should have blown the shofar. Kidding. Turns out it's, that's what, we blow the shofar coronating God as king. And again, one could say that these are complementary themes. The fact that we are small, God is great, we're the subject, God is the king, right? That's that kind of that dynamic. We are, we are humble, we surrender, and God is in control, and God is the, uh, the master and the, you know, the, um, the higher power in our lives. That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah, acknowledging and surrendering. Make sense so far? And that's a theme consistently throughout the prayers on Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is more about where we talk about atonement and sin. Here it's more about understanding the dynamic, the interplay between us and God. Good. But then we get to a very interesting text, which brings up a psychology that that raises a bunch of questions. Text 3a. Now this text comes from the Hasidic... um, from the Hasidic tradition, and uh, this is coming from the, this is authored by the previous Chabad Rebbe, um, and what he does 
is he equates, fascinatingly, he equates um, some more details about a, a human coronation or a physical king's coronation to the divine coronation that's happening in Rosh Hashanah. So he equates these two in a very interesting way to get into the psychology of, of coronation itself. Um, but before we, read this before we read this text, let me ask you guys a question and see what you think. Um, why do you think we make such a big deal about coronations? Why such a big deal? Why all the pomp and circumstance? Right, the King of England, right? right. Pass, some, uh, some, some, the king passes away, and then there's the next king lined up. Why don't we say, all right, you got the job, you're in. Why this whole ceremony and all the pomp and circumstance? It's possibly tradition. So, okay, so that's, that's a good answer. One is tradition. I think I have an, I think I have an answer. Church and state, okay, good, yes? I think I have an answer, because uh, I was in uh, London not long ago. Nice. Actually, right after the coronation, like the, a few days after and the, what they said was a big thing about the coronation was that the king acknowledges that his power comes from God. Nice, nice. And that he is, I guess, like a messenger or something like that of God. There's like a divine element to the whole, to the whole situation. Okay, good, good. But why this, why so much of the drama and why the, what, 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 what is the psychology behind it? That's... That's maybe the theology or the philosophy behind it. What's the psychology behind it? And here the previous Rebbe gives us a very interesting take. Um, Alex, if you don't mind reading, uh, give me one second. This is going to be text number 3A. Please take it away. Our sages proclaim the kingdom of earth is similar to the kingdom of heaven. This means we can understand the celestial kingdom by understanding the terrestrial realm. On earth, kings are coronated by placing a royal crown upon their heads. The coronation ceremony is held with great joy, intense submission to the king, enormous reverence, and splendorous honor. We do this because we need to arouse a desire within the king to be king. The purpose of the coronation is to inspire the king to want to be king, and we achieve this through our submission. The entire nation, ordinary people, and low and high-ranking ministers all submit to the king equally. They pledge their lives and commitment to the king in every possible way. This sparks the king's desire for the kingdom. Oh, so here we have a psychological angle on why coronation ceremonies are such a big deal. If you had to summarize this, help me out here. What's he saying? What's the psychology? We make such pomp and circumstance so that the king... Wants to be king oh. over us. Oh. Selling the job. Good. Say it again. Selling the job. Selling the job. It's like we really, really, really want you to be king. And if you don't, if you if you don't believe it, let me show you how really, really we want you to be king. To really understand this, we need to understand the difference between um, the Jewish understanding of leadership and kingship versus I would say the typical way we understand this, the way this plays out. Uh, within human beings and within nations. So many kings um, become corrupt or are corrupt or lead in a corrupt fashion. And what that means is that it's great to be the king because if you're the king and you make all the rules and you can be corrupt and get whatever you want and punish whoever you want, that's not a bad job. You probably don't have to convince people that you probably don't have to twist so many arms to be like, okay, you, you'll be in a position where you can get whatever you want, do whatever you want to others, right? That's it. How you probably don't have to twist too many arms. 
However, when you think about leadership from a Jewish perspective or from a moral perspective, and you think about something called, you know, in modern terminology, servant leadership, which is not about the leader having the power and fueling their ego, but rather it's leader in the context of someone who is selflessly dedicated to the well-being of another, right? If you think of a leader in that context, then now you have to sell the job. Think about parenting, right? Parenting is not about what you get from the job. It's like, oh, I'm a parent. I have a little person who gives me all the stuff that I know that's, I mean, that's, that's what you're expecting. That's probably not going to happen. I mean, that's, that's not really what, what the job is about. Being a parent is really about dedicating your life to taking care of someone else, right? And that you kind of need to be, well, for a king, you need to be sold on that. A, a righteous, a, like a good, a good king, a righteous king, what a king should be, you have to be sold on that. Like, why would I want to give up my personal life where I get to worry about myself to have to worry about all y'all? You like how I did that, right? That's the king of the South, right? <laughs> I have to worry about all y'all? That's, that's, and that's my new life? I don't, why would I want that? That's, that's insane. Like, who would do that? Who would give up their life for others? Like say, okay, from now on, I'm no longer living my life. Now my life is concerned about you guys. Who would do that? So that's why you got to sell it. You got to sell it hard. It's like, king, we need you. King, you're the best. King, king, king. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It's, what it, it's like selling the king really hard. You got to sell it hard. A little braided brunch reference just thrown in there. Right? You got to sell it really hard. Because you have to evoke in the language of Kabbalah, the ratzon lemelucha, the desire to rule, to be king. Again, you don't have to awaken the desire for someone to be a dictator. That could be self-induced. Oh, I get power? Sure. I'm ready to go. People pursue power all the time. But malchut, to be a king in a Jewish understanding, is not to have power, is not to, rule, to push people around, is not to get more stuff than everyone else. A king means that you're a leader. And a leader means that now you have to be concerned about everyone else. And that requires a little bit of inspo, a little bit of inspiration that has to be pulled out of someone. Um, oh, can I add something? Can I add something? Absolutely. Um, when I study philosophy... By the way, guys, this is a voice from the heavens. <laughs> no, or Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I was taught uh, was that Plato said the, the, kid, the ideal king mm. is the philosopher king. Right. This is a king who would rather be a philosopher in his exact words were in a cave. Right. Than to be a, than to be a king of the people. Yes, yes, but very similar. Yes. Yeah. Philosopher king. He'd rather be a philosopher than be a king. Yeah, and so it's, it's a very, same, it's the same thing. very similar concept, right? If you have a king who was who really wants to be a king, okay. If the person with power wants to be in power, you you're pretty much in trouble. Then you know it's not going to end well. If they were looking for that power. And now they got it, now you're in trouble. Right? I, I, that's, I mean, that's usually what's going on. If you're running after power, the question is why? What's in it for you? You want someone that's running away from it. It's a beautiful story in Torah. 
On the day that the Mishkan, which is the first iteration of the Holy Temple, it was the portable version. It was the home edition. <laughs> it was the, uh, right? Hey, Brian. Good to see you. Standing room only. I'm kidding. Bring a chair. Um, okay, so on the day that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was first inaugurated, they had a big, well, they had a big ribbon and a scissors. Those oversized scissors. And it was, um, it was Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of Nisan, in the year 2449, basically at, like two weeks shy of a year after the Exodus. The Exodus and Passover is the 15th day of Nisan. This is the following year, but the first day of Nisan. So again, just about a year later, they cut the ribbon and they opened up the Mishkan, the portable uh, sanctuary, the portable, the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And on that day, Aaron, the high priest, was supposed to have his first, he was a high priest. So he was supposed to lead the service. And the service then wasn't from the, uh, from the, uh, um, Stender, the beam of the, um, what do you call it? Whatever. He wasn't leading the service as a, huh? The Amud. How do you translate that? I don't know. The yeah. Whatever. Not from the place where the Chaz and the cantor stands and prays. But this was the pulpit, I guess. Yeah. This was a, obviously, sacrifices and, and the service that they did back then in the temple and the Mishkan. So, and he was afraid to, he was afraid to go, afraid to step up. So listen to this. Moses says to him, why are you afraid? Lakach nivcharta. What's the translation of that? That's what you were chosen for. What does that mean? Two ways to interpret it. So this is what Rashi says based on the message. So Aaron, the high priest, is, 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 he's, he's hesitating to step up. Moses, his brother, says to him, Why are you hesitating? That's what you were chosen for. What does that mean? Two ways to understand it. Either Moses was telling his brother, This is it. This is what it's all about. This is why you get... Paid the big bucks, but not really. But this is why you're the big kahuna. This is why you're the Kohen Gadol. Right? For this moment. Step up. Let's do it. That's one way to understand it. Second way, which is, a, in my opinion, a deeper way to understand it is, the kachna of karta means you're, you're, you're hesitant, you're tentative. That's why you should be up there. We don't want the guy who's running up there, at the, running up to the front of the room. You don't want that guy. You want the guy. Lekachnev Charta means you were chosen because you don't want to be the one in the limelight. Because you're a humble person. You want a leader who's humble, not someone who is running after power. Because someone who's running after power is then going to use you as a pawn. Not going to help you, it's going to help them. It says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, be wary of government. Right? Be wary of leaders. Because they, 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 man, the quote's going to be better than my recollection. The quote's amazing. Because when they need you, right, they're nice to you. And when, I'm paraphrasing, and when they don't need you, you're on your own. That's how it works. That's how it works, right? When they need you, oh, you got it. But now we have to figure out which chapter it is. Jay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jason's going to be our research committee here, right? So when they need you, you're important. And when they don't need you, they couldn't care less. That's how most leaders are. What we're talking about here is when, when the previous Rebbe says that the reason why we have such a big ceremony for the coronation, what he means is that a king, like a philosopher king or a humble, uh, 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 you know, a, um, a servant king, someone who approaches this from a space of humility, 
need that needs to be drawn out of them the desire to be because why else would i want to do this job why would i give up my own personal life be able to live a normal life worried about myself like most people and care about so many others dedicate my life to the betterment of so many others to uplift to lead others why would i do that you have to give me a very good reason and that very good reason is again part of what that coronation is meant to evoke that where the person recognizes the king recognizes that these people need him they need him it's not that they want him they need him and he is essential to them and that need can evoke the the um the acceptance of that yoke as it were of the king does that make sense okay but now it gets crazy joy do you mind reading this next one but give me one second. Let's, let's make sure we're all on the same page, literally and figuratively. So we just explained in 3a that the coronation of a physical king is all about evoking the desire to rule. Well, take a look at text 3b. Take a look at how this is applied to the divine experience. When the Jewish people willingly accept God's kingdom upon themselves, submitting their lives and commitment to God in every possible way, the desire is aroused, as it were, within God to become their king. God becomes their king when all Jews accept the yoke of God's kingdom, willingly reciting the passages about monarchy and chanting, reign over the entire world. So let's pause here for a quick moment. What he is saying in text 3b, and this is again the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, what he's saying is that just as it is on a physical level that the physical subjects evoke the desire within the physical king to be king, so too it's with us and God that when we stand in Rosh Hashanah and we say, right, when we say, reign over the entire world in your glory, etc., when we say that, what is the goal? What is the desire? What is, what is happening? We are a- awakening within God the Ratzon Lihiot Melech, the Ratzlom Nucha, the desire for God to be king. Which means, from the positive, you can infer the negative. That means that if we didn't, right, if we didn't say anything, if we didn't show up, if we didn't sound the chauffeur, the chauffeur is also part of the coronation. If we didn't do any of that, we said, God, eh, whatever. Conceptually, conceptually, you wouldn't show up. Because God says, You want me to be king? Convince me. Convince me. Which means that God being king, God creating, God giving, God investing in this is as a result of us kind of extracting that from God, is kind of pulling that out, schlepping that desire out of him. Which, and this is powerful and it might be inspiring, but it raises, to me at least, it raises a bunch of questions. How can we really compare God with a human being? I mean, is that really fair? Is that really accurate? Forget fair. Is that accurate? We're saying that by a human being, for a human being to give up everything for themselves and be there for someone else, you have to give them a good reason. It really convinced me, right? Show up and tell me how great I am and how much you need me. Fine. Maybe I'm in. But with God, is that really the game that we need to play? By Hashem. Is Hashem really needs us to convince him to be king? Right? Is that really what's happening? Is God not kind of beyond that? Is God needy where God needs us to convince him to be king? understand my question? How can we say that it works the same way with God? How can we say that with God also there is a desire 
right? There is a desire that needs to be extracted that's really hidden and it has to be pulled out. How does that make sense? Even I thought God was bigger than that. Right. That's my question. Isn't God bigger than that? God needs us? Doesn't God, because he desires a relationship with oh, us, he wants nice. us to, 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 to approach him. Good. And, and, and Hold that thought. Because that's the path we're headed down. Relationship. Hold that thought. And this, that key is going to explain the entire architecture of creation, according to Kabbalah. But we're going to get there in a second. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say... Go follow that. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> to that point, is it, wasn't the purpose of creation because God desired to have this world? To yes. To have that, which is that give and take. Good. So we're all on the same page here. Take a look at the next text. Okay, let's do this. Next text. Susan, you up to reading? Text number four. It arose in God's desire to create the world to bestow goodness upon his creations. He achieved this by enabling them to recognize his greatness, thus meriting to be subsumed within himself, him, and attached to him. Perfect. So now let me give you a little context, give everyone a little context on the text that we just read. Text number four is coming from Eitzchayim. Eitzchayim is one of the most... I don't know what the right word is. One of the most revered works of Kabbalah. Um, Eitz Chaim was written by Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Vital, Eitz Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was the primary student of Rabbi Yitzchak or Isaac Luria, known as the Arizal. If you've ever heard, if you're familiar with Kabbalah, the different um, branches, I'll say strains, branches of Kabbalah, one branch being Lurianic Kabbalah from the Arizal, um, uh, Rabbi Isaac, Yitzchak Isaac Luria, and, hey David, good to see you. And no worries, you can come on in. And, um, and so, uh, so he, didn't, he taught, but he didn't write anything down. Darizal taught Kabbalah, but didn't write anything. He didn't publish. But his student wrote all the stuff down. Student wrote, and then he published his uh, master's uh, teachings. So he... Was there a reason why he did not That's a very good question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there was a, if he thought that it was too holy or too sacred to be penned, you know, physical ink on parchment or whatever paper, um, or if it was just something, sorry? Or he was humble, maybe, or he was just kind of channeling and not, you know, the medium of his communication was verbal and not, you know, writing. By the way, our Rebbe also didn't do a lot of writing. I mean, he used to, he used to do some, some writing before he became Rebbe, but after that, a lot of it, most of it was, um, was not, uh, what's it called again? It was not, was not written. It was, it was, um, it was verbal. Yeah, it was oral. Yeah. And everything is, oh yeah, yeah, everything's published, published by, by students. Right. Yeah. Okay, Ariza, you're saying his teaching were not only after he passed away. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was in his lifetime or maybe after his lifetime, but it was definitely in, uh, definitely by his student, by his student. Okay. Now, so listen to this. And there was light. Look at that. Oh, Jason, that's you. I didn't. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, but what does the what does the Eitz Chaim say? He says like this: It arose, and I'm going to repeat it again, and just give a little bit of commentary on it. It arose in God's desire to create the world. To, why to bestow kindness upon His creations? In other words, why did God create a world? You can give a thousand reasons why God created. And by the way, this is the question everyone asks: Why are we here? Everyone asked that question at some point in their life, like why, why, are, why, is, why are we here? Why am I here? What's the purpose? And this gives a very interesting answer. 
This is not the only answer that's given, but this is an answer that's given. And this answer says, you know why God created? Because he wanted to bestow goodness upon his creations. You know what that means? You can't act in a way of chesed, kindness, if you're the only one around. Because who are you giving, who are you being chesed, who are you doing chesed to? You can't give if there's no one to take. So if God wants to give, if God wants a relationship, because isn't that what a relationship is? It's about this back and forth. If God wants a relationship, there has to be an other. If there's no other, there's no relationship. Relationship with self? I don't know, but it's, it's not the same thing. So in order to have, in order to give, he had to create. He wanted others to know him. He wanted to be able to give to them. He wanted that relationship. Now, by the way, this is such a major idea because it really explains so much of how Kabbalah describes the architecture of existence. So let's review some highlights um, in, the, in the context of how God creates the world according to Kabbalah. Now, if you do not study Kabbalah, so you think of it very simply, God created the world, and that's it, God and us, done. However, when you study a little bit of Jewish mystical thought, you realize that there's a lot more in between point A and point B. There's all of these other things involved. So for example, I'll give you a few, few classic ideas. Number one, it says originally, initially, there's just God. And then, and God is referred to sometimes as Ein Sof. Ein Sof means without end. Infinite, endless, no limitations, no definitions, Ein Sof. Then God emanates R. What is R or R? Light. light. And that's called the R Ein Sof. Right? R Ein Sof is the light of the infinite. What is happening now? Hmm. Oh, no, we're here. We're good. So can you guys still see me on Zoom? All right, great. So um, R Ein Sof is the light of the infinite one or the infinite light which means that at a certain point in time, it wasn't just God, it was God and the light. Well, what is light? That's the what, what Kab, the Kabbalists use the phrase light. What's light? There was an actual light. Right, just turn on the lights here, but what's, or more lights. Well, what, what, what is the meaning of light? So I'll give you a working definition or <coughs> a working explanation of what light really means. So the mystics explain like this, that you have, everything has, everything has two, two uh, dimensions. There's the way it is on its own, and then the way it expresses itself outwardly or extends outwardly. So for example, think about yourself. So there's who you are at the core, and then there's how you express yourself to others, how, you, how others see you. Well, that might be a third dimension, but there's how you express yourself to others. So imagine you have two people that meet each other for the first time, right? First date. So you have each, you have two individuals, but then each individual is kind of presenting themselves and you know uh, showing up a certain way. And so this person, person A, is showing up a certain way. Person B is showing up a certain way. And so what's really meeting on this date? The projection of person A and the projection of person B. That might not be actually who they are. You with me on this? And I'm not trying to suggest that people are always trying to be manipulative and, and trying to be, you know, present themselves, you know, contrary to who they are and being, uh, um, you know, uh, um, hypocritical, etc. That's not my intention. My point is simply like this. My point is simply this. 
every in every um, area of life, there's the thing itself, known in Hebrew as etzem, and then there's how it is manifest or how it how it how it extends to others, and that is what we call gilui, right? Revelation. There's etzem and gilui, two different realities. So, for example, there's the sun. There's the actual sun itself, the orbit of the sun. Sorry, the orb of sun, and then there is as the sun choir practice. Nice. And then there is, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Guys, we get a concert after this. Um, so there's, there's the sun itself, and then there are the rays of the sun that extend. So if you were drawing this, like the extent of my artistic ability, so you would draw a circle, that would be the sun, and then those little spokes that you put outside of the round, that would be the extension, the revelation, the light, the R. Now in Hebrew, you use two different words. Shemesh, sun, but you we call it the ma'ar, the ma'ar, the source of light. And then the ar is the light that extends. With a person, you have who they are, the person themselves, and then you have as they show up, as they express themselves, as they're manifest. Two different, two different dynamics. So there's God as God is, essentially. And then there's how God extends, reveals himself. The first step of creation is God moving out from just being self-contained and expressing. Because again, if there's no, or maybe not again for the first time, right? if there's no one around, you don't have to have expression. If you're alone on an island, you don't need that second dimension of your persona. You can just be. You can let your hair down. You don't have to be. right. You walk in your house and no one's around, you may take your jacket, throw it on the couch. You may go to the fridge, knock down some orange juice from the carton. That may happen. I'm not saying it does. I'm not saying it should. I'm just saying someone else is around. You're going to hang up your stuff. Hopefully, right? Hang up your jacket, pour it into a cup, into a glass, drink it. Uh, be very formal. That's not you. I'm not saying you're. But you're right. There's you and then there's the way that you're showing up. And they may be, they may be a little bit different. And so when, when a person is just alone, if you're alone on a desert island, right, assuming that it is by choice, because we don't want to shipwreck anybody in this example, right, let's say you, you're going on a vacation to an isolated, to a desolate desert island, and you can't wait to just be by yourself. This is going to be like, um, I don't know, a, a retreat for yourself, a retreat for one. Great. You no longer, you don't, need a, you don't even need a name. Right? You don't need a name. And if a volleyball washes up, you call it Wilson. Volleyball or soccer ball? What was that? Volleyball. It was volleyball, right? Yeah, absolutely. Wilson. But without Wilson, you don't need another persona. You're just, you're just who you are. You don't even need a name. Name is only someone else knows how to call you and differentiate you between others, from others. You self-contain. You're just you. Or I'm just I. So as long as God is not creating anything else, God doesn't need a persona. God doesn't need an avatar. God doesn't need light. God just is God. When God decides to create, oh, now there needs to be expression. Now there needs to be that second half of the persona. And then, as Kabbalah explains, what happens next? Now there's light, but light is in an infinite expansion. So now there needs to be something called simtsum. What's simtsum? It's a great word to say, but it means contraction. Now, now there's too much light. There's no space for anything else. So now God retracts, has to retract and pull back a little bit. 
to give some space for other otherness to emerge. And then in the space, against the backdrop of that empty space, then there's something called the Kav. This is all Kabbalah. Then there's something called the Kav. The Kav means a line. And it's, instead of being an infinite expanse of light, of God's projection, you now have, again, the, the absence in the space of the Tzimtzum. And then into that absence, from the original source, you have a ray of light shining into that space to give it a finite definition and finite form of creation. And then from that, that kav, that ray of light, then expands and, and, and continues to evolve or devolve to the point where it becomes, what transforms from spiritual energy to physical matter, and that is the world that we inhabit. And that's the short version of how Kabbalah explains creation. It starts off with God's essence, the Ein Sof. Then it goes into our Ein Sof manifestation. Then you have Tzimtzum, the withdrawal. Then you have the emanation of the Kav. And then you have, I skipped this before, then you have four worlds, Atzila, Bria, Yitzir, Asiya, world of emanation, creation, formation, action. Within each world you have ten Sefirot, ten energies, Chesed, Gevura, Teferet, Netzachod, Yesod, Malchut. You have all of these energies, all of these realms, all these spheres. And the energy becomes more and more defined and more and more defined until it produces our physical reality, Mazel Tov. So the problem with that is, not the problem. That's how Kabbalah explains it. Again, on one foot, you know, uh, join us for Kabbalah classes. You know, we have one starting um, in October. Join Kabbalah classes to get more details on all of this and more. However, here's my question. Why couldn't God have just created us like we would have thought without Kabbalah? God and us. Why the need for all this elaborate process? Why the need for the light, for the infinite light? And then the need to retract the light. And then the need to, uh, to, re, to unretract the light through the cab. And then the need for the different worlds. Why the need for this elaborate system? Why this need for what's called in Kabbalah, the Seder Hishtal Shalut, where you have an order and a chain or a link of, of, of worlds and dimensions where it gets progressively more um, coarse and more materialized. Why the need for all of that? Why not just God and us? And there's a beautiful answer that's given in Kabbalah and Chassidus. And that is what I want to share with you now. And this is going to be the big idea of tonight's class. God could have created just like that. Without any chain, without any orderly process. But then it would not have been logical. It wouldn't have made sense. And if it wouldn't make sense, we would never have an ability to know or understand God. It would be impossible. Creation as it is, is impossible. But it would be even more impossible had it not followed a projection. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say you're designing a brand new car. You're deciding, you, you, you have in mind, you're designing a new car. The world has never seen this car. Elon Musk, watch out. Watch out. There's a new kid on the block and it's me designing a car. So how does it begin? It begins with a vision. This car is going to do it. Then once, after it's in your head, you now have to get it down and, and sketch it. And then you sketch it again and, and refine the sketches and then you create a 3D model on, your, on the computer and then you create an actual model and then you create a, a prototype and then eventually, eventually it rolls off the assembly line to the thrill of the masses and you are now the most celebrated automobile manufacturer in history. Mazel tov. Well done. It started off as a vision in your head and now it's an actual vehicle rolling on the, on the road. To get from point A, vision in the head, to point... I don't know, whatever that is. At the end, an actual car requires so many steps. Build a business, 
build a house, build a car, whatever it is. It starts off as an idea and it ends with something concrete. And in between are, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of steps and micro steps along the way. And each step of the way, assuming that it's moving further toward the goal, the vision is getting more and more defined and more and more real and more and more practical as it goes down that chain from beginning to end, from idea, from vision, from concept to final product, correct? That's the way Kabbalah says God created. God had a conception, God had a vision, I want to create another, I want a relationship, and thus there's a whole process that unfolds from big light to small light to medium-sized light, and then smaller, 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 until you get to the final product, it's a similar construct from vision to final product, and it follows it. And the question that Kabbalah asks, again, I'm just restating the question, why do you need a process? Can't God just go from concept car to real car? God can do anything. Why do you need all the iterations? Why do you need that process? Why do you need the iterator process? If you've ever, and I'm thinking about you now, Jason, if you ever worked with somebody on on creating something and, and achieving goals, right? So you take them through that process. It's like you have a goal, but you're not getting there because you need all these steps along the way. Let's map out the steps. Let's map out 10, 20, 100, whatever it is, steps to get from here, point A to point B. But God could have skipped all those steps because God is God. Why couldn't God have just said, I want a world, done world? Why did God need all those steps? And the answer is simple and powerful and absolutely thrilling. And the answer is because God wanted, again, a real relationship with us. And that means that we should be able to relate to Him. If God operated in a way that transcends any logical framework, then we could not relate to him. We wouldn't understand. How could God have created this? There's nothing in between. It's just God and us. Imagine if you're trying to get down, listen to this. If you're trying to get down from the top of a, I don't know, of a uh, 10-story building, right? And somehow you have the ability to float down and to land softly. And you do so. That's great. But if you do that, and that's how you get down, no one else can get up. If you take a ladder and put down that ladder, someone can climb back up that ladder. God can come down just like that. God can go from A to B. God can go from God to reality just like that with no la- with, without any ladders, without any steps in between. But if there are no steps, guess what? We can't understand it. We can't climb back up. And that would rob us of that relationship, which means that God orchestrated all of these steps along the way, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And he wanted to for us and only for us. It's not for him. He didn't create the world in an orderly, step-by-step fashion. He didn't unfold four different spiritual worlds and all these (coughs) other levels of, 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 of spiritual reality. He didn't do that for himself. He did that for us. Let's take a look at some text inside. I'm going to read some text very quickly, and then we're going to get to the big conclusion. Yeah. I don't know why it reminds me of something that you said. If I am I and you are you, hmm. can you finish that? Yeah, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I'm not I and you're not you. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you, and now we can have a relationship. But that is similar to the projection. Three times. Huh? Say that three times fast. Well, <laughs> it comes from, <coughs> I think it comes from the Kutzker Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem of Kutzk. If I am I because you are you, which means that I'm not being authentic, I'm being who I think you want me to be. And you are you because I am I. In other words, you're being inauthentic, you're being the one who you think I want you to be. Then I'm not I, and you're not you. We're, not, we're both not authentic, there's no relationship. 
because who's actually meeting? A false version of me and a false version of you. They may have a great time, but we're probably going to be miserable because no one's being authentic. It catches up to you eventually. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I'm I, you're you, and now we can relate. But yeah, it gets to that idea. So anyway, the point here is that, um, take a look at text 5b. Oh, this is what we're up to. I'm going to read this. We're going to go through a few texts quickly and then to the, to the grand finale. God is omnipotent and can do anything. Had he wanted to, he could have created from within his infinite self without revealing or extending himself to our creation, without the medium of light. In other words, God could have created without any steps in between. God, us, done. He didn't do that. Why? Because that would have rendered creation a process inaccessible to the human mind. It would have made sense to us. Human intelligence requires that, uh, sorry, requires the creator to be in an outward state of extension that has some relation to the created. A creative process that does not abide by these rules is incomprehensible to the human mind. In other words, God unfolds creation in a way that mirrors the way we unfold creation in order that we should have a frame of reference to understand God and to relate to God. It is known that God wanted us to understand the process of creation as much as possible. Therefore, God operated through a logical rather than a drastic process wherever possible. This is why God chose to create through the medium of light rather than from within His infinite self. God chose to, um, to project and to unfold in a logical step uh, fashion as opposed to just somehow supernaturally and, and impossibly creating um, all of this. Which leads us to the following conclusion, and this is um, where, where things wrap up. There is a verse in Job, text 6. The Hebrew reads, Umibsari By observing my flesh, I perceive God. The way the mystics understand this is that Job is saying, Eov, Job, or the famous sufferer, what he's saying is that when I look at myself, since I'm created in the image of God, when I look at myself, I can understand how things operate on a divine level, on, on, on a spiritual level, on a cosmic level. Not because I'm projecting my limitations or my truths onto God. That would be creating God in our image. No, it's because we are created. Human beings are created certainly in the divine image. And thus, the way things work with us, it's designed that way to give us a sense of how it works above. God gave us this blessing of a relationship. God gave us this gift of a relationship, and part of that means that we can relate to Him by relating to ourselves. When we relate to ourselves and understand how we work, we can relate to God. And this takes us back, all the way back to the coronation. Remember the coronation? We asked the question, does God really need us to convince Him to be king? What God needs us? God is needy? And the answer is, in the context of a relationship, God can also do that. God can also make himself needy. God can also say that I have this element within me that is called malchut, the desire to lead. And that desire is going to be stirred. That desire is going to be um, uh, evoked. That desire is going to be um, elicited by human beings who desire that I should be their king. And without that, in the absence of that, I will not impose my kingship on them. It's going to be the product of a relationship because I want a relationship. Which tells us the following, and this is the, the, the final point. And it's a daring concept. And you only find it in Kabbalah. Really, who else could say this, come up with this, and, and, and articulate this other than the Kabbalists? The mystics say the following. That God created the world, we read in Eitzchayim, God created the world. Why? 
because he wanted another. Can we say he was bored with himself? I, I didn't say that, right? I, I literally did not say that, but I did. But he, it's, that's the implication. Not exactly, but maybe. God wanted a relationship. God wanted to give. God wanted to love. God wanted to be loved. Now, does that imply that God has a need for that? I don't know. I don't know. But a God who has no needs is also problematic. Because then, then what are we doing here? If God, let me just share with you my train of thought. If God has no needs for all this, that means that what are we doing here? Something that is objectively meaningless. You with me on that? If what we do doesn't actually affect God, then you know what that means? We don't really have a job. It's like, imagine someone hires someone and says, I have a very important job for you. I want you to take these papers, sort them, file them, take the boxes, and move them over there. It's really important. Six months later, you find out that that wasn't necessary. How do you feel now? You were hired to do that job. Six months later, you find out no one needed those, those papers over there. No need to be sorted. Everything was already scanned in, digital. This is a waste of time. How are you feeling? Oh, no. But also not no. One second. One second. That's, that's the whole point of tonight's class. Good. That question. So we're saying God has human characteristics? Stay with it. Good. That's, we need to get, we, this is the breakthrough. One second. To say that God has no needs or desires, to say that God is perfect, would be to rob us of any meaning or significance. It's to say basically that God created us and said, oh, here, here's a list of rules. Here's the Torah. It's going to guide you to live. This is guidance to live. And, and, and if you do it, great. If not, uh, then we're to do better next time. And then you ask the question, so does God need this? No. no. So then what's this for? Eh, he gave us busy work. <laughs> he created us, created a structure, said, here are the rules. I don't care. He doesn't say that. He really, th- I don't care. But he created us. That's a cruel God. The, Kab- the God of Kabbalah is actually a pretty cool, not cruel, a cool God. Because the God of Kabbalah, I don't mean there's different gods, but I mean the way Hashem is described in Kabbalah is God is perfect, without any needs. But God decided. Why? We don't know. God decided that He wants a relationship, a real relationship with another. And He decided to abide by, or to create, not to abide by, to create the rules of relationship. And you know what the first rule of relationship is? Being vulnerable. Being vulnerable. And that means if the other one does not say I love you, if you say I love you and the other one doesn't say I love you back, I can't say it hurts God, but I can't say it doesn't mean anything either in the context of a real relationship. If the relationship is real, if you can say I love you, and the other one does not say I love you back, and that doesn't matter, then the question is, where's the relationship? If, if the other can do whatever they want and it doesn't affect you, so then how connected are you? Connection implies that what you do hurts or feels good, but it affects the other. If you have a rope between two, two parties, right, Dr. Gordon, if you and I are holding a rope and I pull the rope, you're going to be schlepped. You pull the rope, I'm going to be schlepped. If you and I are both pulling, or if I'm pulling and nothing's happening to you, you know what that means? I need my big scissors again from the, from the, from the, from the opening ceremony. Boom, it means, there's a, it means there's a breach. If God is in, and this is what he wanted. I didn't say he wanted this. 
Kabbalists say, and again, this is from a higher authority here, if God wanted a real relationship, then that's why he created the world in a logical fashion. He did all these steps to get us to be able to understand him. He did all these steps to get us to a place where we can appreciate him, so that we can relate to him. And he says, here's what I want. I want you to ask me to be your king. I want to feel that there's a genuine need that you have for me to be in your life. And then I will show up. On Rosh Hashanah, we affirm this great truth. On Rosh Hashanah, we affirm this great truth that we are in a real relationship with God. And that means that what we do and what we think and what we say, how we feel, all of that matters. We are not human beings who artificially constructed some purpose to keep ourselves busy when really nothing matters. Because at the end of the day, if that's the narrative of life, it seems very futile. The Jewish narrative of life is that a mitzvah is meaningful. Tfilah, prayer, is meaningful. All of these things mean something. They're significant because they constitute the way we relate to Hashem. And so this year, as we stand or sit on Rosh Hashanah, and we open up our prayer books and we recite prayers, or on Sunday, when we finally get to hear that shofar blast, and the shofar blowers better do a good job. They got one day. There's no second chance. You get one day, right? I want to create stickers for after the service. I had a blast at Rosh Hashanah services. Someone's got, oh, everyone groaned and laughed at the same time. That was a very unique reaction. You notice that? Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And all, I had a blast on the front. And on the back, and all I got was this t-shirt. Anyway, something like that. You have to create some swag, some Rosh Hashanah service swag. All right, maybe next year. It's going to be too late now. Um, so what's the point? When we sit or stand the Rosh Hashanah at the prayers, when we hear that shofar blast, remember this. The reason for this, the reason why we're blowing the shofar, the reason why we pray um, and, and, and ask God to be king is because not because we have that power. Because God wanted that relate once that relationship, and has made himself vulnerable to us. And it reminds us not to take advantage of that love and that vulnerability. To say, well, God's, God will always be there no matter what is true, but it's to take advantage of that, of, that, uh, of that love and that desire to be in a relationship with us. Let's this year recognize the central role that each of us plays in this cosmic drama, in this cosmic relationship, and let us indeed stand up and say, Hashem, you are God. You are important in my life. And I know that I am important in your life, not because I had to, but because you chose for that to be the scenario. And because of this, I pledge that this, that this year will be a year in which I am dedicated to what you want in this world. And I will be an ambassador of light, of love, of kindness, of goodness, of healing, and of blessing in this world. Let us all resolve to stand up in Rosh Hashanah and make that declaration in one way or another. And when we hear the sound of shofar, let's remember that it's all about the relationship. And may Hashem in turn bless us all with a ksiva v'chasim tova, l'shana tova mesuka, with a happy and healthy, sweet new year um, where all the blessings should be sweet. We say sweet because sometimes blessings can come in silver linings and in ways that are not so obviously sweet. We want blessings that are clearly sweet. May Hashem indeed deliver those blessings to us and our families, our loved ones, our communities, and the world at large. 
And may we experience this year the end of all negativity, of all pain, of all challenge, a year of complete, complete blessings and perfect good, let us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you all for joining us tonight for the first of three of the High Holiday Boot Camp. Next week, our class is on Rosh Hashanah. And the topic, does anybody know the topic? Sorry, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. And the topic, who knows the topic? I can't remember the topic, but I will tell you right now. Um, it's called, hold on. I'm literally looking at the website. That's how I find out all the information. Um, next week's topic is called 321. Oh, Yom Kippur's class next Wednesday, Room for Improvement. That sounds like a, like a, like a theme. By the way, I want to thank, it sounds like a relevant theme. Before we close out, I want to thank, first of all, everybody for joining. Um, and I also want to thank all of the individuals that sponsored, um, uh, helped participate in tonight's, uh, in, in this series. Um, we mentioned Amy and Mike, of course. We have other sponsors as well. Um, we have Jody, Stacy, and Trevor Horowitz, Jeff and Lori, uh, Kunkus, Mira Robbins, Ronnie, and Madeline Spiegelman. Thank you very much for all of those that participated and helped sponsor. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Shana Tova, everybody. May we all have a blast this year. <laughs> so the answer to your question, why did we do big coronation from the TV producer? Because they give great ratings. Say it one more time. Well, I kept saying, why do we keep doing big coronation from the TV producer? Right. Because they give you great ratings. Great ratings, right. But this was before TV. And still. And still. <laughs> right. See you next year. Exactly. <laughs> Guys, say hi. You'll see a lot of friends. Yeah. Are you through with this? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hi, George. <laughs> familiar faces. A lot of familiar faces. And Ray is here. You guys see Ray? Ray, we got a lot of friends. Oh, wow. It's so nice. It is so nice to see everybody. Wow. Great to see you all. Mom, great to see you. Dr. Maxi, Charnan Howard, Mark, Sandrine, Lisa. David, Steve. Hi, Dad. Yes. <laughs> very, very special. Very, very special. Did you give everything away, or is Saturday going to be different? No, 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 no. Don't worry. We'll have plenty of. Yes, thank you for reminding me. Come, come. Yes. No, we're going to have more. So Saturday, so just to schedule services. Of course, there are traditional, sorry? 10 to 11.30. 90 minutes right over here in these chairs. We're expecting a pretty full house, so. Yeah. We expect you to be uh, 75 minutes because you did so much tonight. <laughs> and Sunday the same. Sunday the same, yeah. Tell, if you know anybody that would like to join the services, spread the word. It's going to be, it's always fun and it's always meaningful. And, um. Thank you. And I will see you. All right. Great to see you. Welcome back. Okay. We'll see you guys. Lila Tov, everybody. Bye, Bye, guys. Take care. See you next year. Yeah, see you soon. Thank you. Pleasure. Susan, great to see you. And Ray, great to see you.